0: Welcome, Alternative News Listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, today is Friday, October 29th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, November the 1st, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 80th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on PedroGatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. I want to welcome you to a very special show tonight. The focus of which includes an in-depth analysis and expose of war profiteering and the costs of war with special guest, investigative reporter and author, Jeremy Kuzmirov. Enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light Into Darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday, October 29th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, November the 1st, 2021. Thank you for joining us. We start our show tonight with some important reflections that set the table for the content of our focus this evening. We have done a number of shows on wealth inequality in our country and in the world, so we won't belabor the point. In this show, but we do want to set the stage and the context for this show to remind folks about this gross wealth inequality that we have in the world today, as well as within our own country. In a Business Insider article on July 28, 2020, entitled How Billionaires Got $637 Billion Richer During the Pandemic, it detailed some important elements. During a significant period of the pandemic, from March 2020 through June 2020, in those three or four months, billionaires in the United States have increased their net worth, their wealth that is, by some $637 billion. This is during the COVID pandemic. It was only counting from March to June of 2020. Meanwhile, just a month earlier in May 2020, Fortune Magazine reported that over 40 million Americans had filed for unemployment during the pandemic, creating a real jobless rate, of 24 percent. The article also interestingly details that the post-recession period from 2009 to 2012 when folks were trying to dig out from the recession, the incomes of the bottom 99 percent over this three-year period grew by only 0.4 percent, less than a half a percent. Meanwhile the top 1 percent incomes grew by 31.4 percent during the same time span. Meanwhile, a study in 2012 found that as much as 32 trillion was being held offshore by the world's wealthiest people. In such a wealth disparity plagued world, we are falsely taught that we have a free press that looks out for the majority population, instead of realizing that with such wealth disparity, who do you think owns the very medias that are supposed to lead us out of this abyss? The very people and interests that benefit from that status quo. So that is why you don't hear these types of statistics of wealth disparity on your local or cable news, on MSNBC, on NPR, on Fox News, or CNN. Because if you did, then you might be questioning what type of system that we call a democracy lines the pockets of the top 1% during recessions and creates $637 billion dollars of increased wealth for billionaires during a pandemic within the matter of 8 to 12 weeks. It's really worth thinking about. Or consider this. We have also cited Oxfam's January of 2020 Time to Care report that came out five or six months before the Business Insider article, and it detailed how A significant amount of the wealth inequality is generated by the burden placed on women throughout the world who provide unpaid and underpaid care work. The report featured a number of shocking facts, including that the richest 1% in the world had more than double the wealth of 6.9 billion people. It detailed how women and girls put in some 12.5 billion hours of unpaid work every day. It also detailed how women's unpaid care work had a monetary value of some $10.8 trillion a year. In other words, $10.8 trillion of unpaid labor annually helps fuel the gross wealth inequality of the world. But today's show, we turn to how the costs of war are also disproportionately shouldered. In fact, war is profitable for the 1%, even as in Afghanistan where the United States lost the war. Think about that. What if we don't even care if we win or lose a war because in the act of war, a very small elite percentage of business makes incredible windfall profits. So tonight we focus on how war is profitable for the same 1% who need those material gains the least. We also will focus on how private Military companies, PMCs, and proxy forces are utilized by U.S. foreign policy to an extent that also is rarely covered by our media or acknowledged by our government leaders. Before introducing our guest, we wanted to describe one of the greatest costs of war and yet another underreported, at a sight, at a mind tragedy, and that is the cost of war to our veterans. And first, we wanted to put this in the context of the current situation in Congress where they've authorized some $3.5 trillion for a human infrastructure bill over a decade. And there's all of these arguments about how are we going to pay for that? It's not fiscally responsible. It's not right to burden our children and grandchildren with such a debt and those types of things. But with that in mind, Brown University's Cost of War Project came out with a study in September of 2021. And then later, Dr. Linda J. Belmus, she's the Daniel Patrick Moynihan's chair in public policy and public finance at the Harvard Kennedy School, Harvard University, and is the U.S. member of the United Nations Committee of Experts on Public Administration. She co-authored with Joseph Stiglitz The renowned economist, actually the Nobel Prize winning economist, but she co-authored The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict in 2008 with Joseph Stiglitz. And she's also completed previous studies in 2007, 2011, and 2013, estimating the cost of providing disability compensation and medical benefits to veterans of the post 9-11 wars. She is the daughter of a World War II veteran. And as veterans continue to bear huge physical and mental costs from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, she writes, the cost of caring for post-9-11 war veterans will reach between 2.2 and $2.5 trillion by the year 2050. And most of this has not yet been paid for which means the U.S. may shortchange its promises to these veterans if the government does not make adequate budgetary commitments, the summary from her paper indicates. Long after the post-9-11 wars end, she writes, the largest single long-term cost of these wars will be benefits and medical care for men and women who served in Afghanistan, Iraq, and related theaters since 2001 and their dependents. Expenditures to care for veterans doubled from 2.4% of the federal budget in fiscal year 2001 to 4.9% in fiscal year 2020, even as the total number of living veterans from all U.S. wars declined from 25.3 million to 18.5 million. The cost associated with caring for post 9 11 veterans will not reach their peak until decades after the conflict as veterans' needs increase with age. She goes on in her August 18, 2021 report, The Long-Term Costs of United States Care for Veterans of the Afghanistan and Iraq Wars by Linda Belmis. More than 40% of post-9-11 veterans, an extraordinarily high proportion, are entitled to lifetime disability payments, and this number is expected to increase to 54% over the next 30 years. By comparison, fewer than 25% of veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the First Gulf War have been certified as having a service-connected disability. To conclude the highlights of a report, this paper provides evidence of the strain that veterans have borne during this conflict. These young men and women have served longer tours of duty, been exposed to more raw combat, and suffered much higher rates of disability than during any previous U.S. war. Again, the author warns that the United States risks defaulting on our financial obligations to this generation of veterans. And then lastly, before turning to our guest tonight, I wanted to highlight a few of the points made by William Hartung, who wrote The Profits of War, How Corporate America Cashed In on the Post-9-11 Pentagon Spending Surge. And it was recently published just this past september 2021 he highlights some of the non-human combat costs and the extraordinary profiteering that occurred by a very limited number of u.s corporations and interests he cites a congressional research service february 3, 2021 report entitled defense primer department of defense contractors and in Hartung's piece He juxtaposes defense spending between weapon contractors and then also non-combat defense contractors. According to his piece, the Office of Secretary of Defense, the comptroller, in an April 2020 report indicates that the Pentagon has total spending of some $14 trillion, up to one-half of which went directly to defense contractors. This $14 trillion spent by the Pentagon all has occurred since the start of the Afghan war in 2001. When you break down the defense spending, the weapons contractors, more than one-third of all contracts, now go to just five major weapons companies, and he cited Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Boeing. General Dynamics, Raytheon, and Northrop Grumman, and it totaled some $166 billion in such contracts in fiscal year 2020 alone. So he indicates that these are the greatest beneficiaries. With respect to the defense spending portion that went to non-combat defense contractors, he writes, meanwhile, in the past 20 years, logistics and construction firms like Kellogg Brown and Root, KBR, and Bechtel, as well as armed private contractors like Blackwater and DynCorp, according to the Congressional Research Service, estimates in fiscal year 2020, this contracting spending had grown to $420 billion, well over half of the total Pentagon budget. He suggests that the political climate was created by the global war on terror And taken advantage of, as the Bush administration officials quickly dubbed it, this global war on terror, it sets the stage for incredible increases in the Pentagon budget. In the first year after the 9-11 attacks and the invasion of Afghanistan, defense spending rose by more than 10%, and that was just the beginning. It would, in fact, increase annually for the next decade, which was unprecedented in American history, he writes. The Pentagon budget peaked in 2010 at the highest level since World War II at over $800 billion, substantially more than the country spent on its forces at the height of the Korean or Vietnam Wars or during President Ronald Reagan's vaunted military buildup of the 1980s. And he goes on to write that the Biden administration is anything but an exception. Its latest proposal for spending on the Pentagon and related defense work like nuclear warhead development at the Department of Energy, topped $753 billion for FY2022. And not to be outdone, the House and Senate Armed Services Committee have already voted to add roughly $24 billion to that staggering sum, he writes. The best-known reconstruction and logistics contractor in Iraq and Afghanistan was Halliburton through its KBR subsidiary, At the start of both the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, Halliburton was a recipient of the Pentagon's Logistics Civil Augmentation Program contracts. Those contracts are open-ended arrangements involved coordinating support functions for troops in the field, including setting up military bases, maintaining equipment, and providing food and laundry services. By 2008, the company had received more than $30 billion for such work. The notion of privatizing military support services, he writes, was first initiated in the early 1990s by Dick Cheney when he was Secretary of Defense in the George H.W. Bush administration, and Halliburton got the contract to figure out how to do it. Meanwhile, Cheney went on to be Halliburton's CEO until he became Vice President under George W. Bush in 2001. Once it secured its billions of dollars for work in Iraq, Halliburton proceeded to vastly overcharge the Pentagon for basic services, even while doing shoddy work that put U.S. troops at risk, and it would prove to be anything but an exception. Starting in 2004, a year into the Iraq War, the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction which was a congressionally mandated body designed to root out waste, fraud, and abuse, along with congressional watchdogs like uh, Representative Henry Waxman, exposed scores of examples of overcharging, faulty construction, and outright theft by contractors engaged in the rebuilding of that country. Incredible war profiteering. The Congressional Commission on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan estimated that as of 2011, waste, fraud, and abuse in the two war zones had already totaled some $31 billion to $60 billion. It's also important to note that the giant weapons-producing corporations actually sold more weaponry to Saudi Arabia on average during the Obama administration, including three major offers in 2010 that, that totaled more than $60 billion for combat aircraft, attack helicopters, armored vehicles, bombs, missiles, and guns, Many of those systems were used by the Saudis in their intervention in Yemen, which involved not just killing thousands of civilians in indiscriminate airstrikes and the imposition of a blockade that all contributed substantially to deaths of nearly a quarter of a million people to this date in Yemen alone. In the words of War is a Racket speech and his 1935 short book by the same title, by Smedley D. Butler, a retired United States Marine Corps Major General and two time Medal of Honor winner. War is a Racket. And our guest tonight, Jeremy Kuzarov, wrote an important piece, Distancing Acts, Private Mercenaries, and the War on Terror and American Foreign Policy, back in December of 2014. Joins us to enlighten us more about American foreign policy, its means and methods, and private mercenaries' role in our foreign policy history and currently. So I wanted to formally welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Jeremy Kazarov. Jeremy, thank you so much for making time to come back to Bringing Light into Darkness.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, Jeremy is the managing editor of Covert Action magazine. He is the author of a number of books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars by Clarity Press in 2019 and The Russians Are Coming Again. With John Marciano. So Jeremy, let me ask you first, that's a pretty lengthy introduction to the show, but I wanted to put it into the context of the costs of war and the apparent ignorance of the American public about a lot of these costs, I believe. And so would you like to just share a few words that speak to the introduction first? And then, then I'd really like to jump into one of your articles that I just previously mentioned.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, I thought that was really a brilliant introduction that summarized very well, you know, the injustice and atrocities that have gone on, and the profiteering, shameless profiteering that has gone on. With, you know, Bush. I mean, it was really out in the open. In the Bush administration, as you pointed out, with the Halliburton, you know, oil companies, uh, their close ties to Bush and Cheney. But you know, you see it really in any administration. I mean, the Obama administration, you know, one of Obama's major donors from the beginning of his career was the Crown family of major shareholders in General Dynamics, one of the huge weapons manufacturers that you pointed out, that they're big profiteers off all this. And they were involved even in the manufacture of drone drone technology. So you see it in every administration, and it's just, you know, disgusting. I mean, people have no conscience that... I guess it's endemic in the capitalist system, you know, profit over people, profit above anything else, and all those dead Yemenis, uh, Iraqis, or Afghans, you know, don't register at all. Yeah,
0: that's that's exactly the point, that the result of these policies is not just that they're wrong, it's that they take millions of lives, you know, millions of lives in Iraq alone, right, in in Vietnam Mm -hmm. alone, right? You know, here are a quarter million in, in Yemen. Not a word being peeped in our day-to-day press. So the American public is just distanced from the destruction and the cost to lives. Uh, I wanted to share with our audience that you wrote an article. It's, it's back in 2014, but it's so timely in the in sense of trying to get a grasp on what U.S. foreign policy is about and how to maintain these different uh, conflicts and wars and profiteering without the american public getting really upset like it did so largely back in vietnam and in fact uh, i think as a result of vietnam the draft was discontinued to try to distance folks away from the costs of war and i keep using the word distance because I i got it from your article distancing arts Private Mercenaries in the War on Terror and American Foreign Policy of December Twenty First, Two Thousand Fourteen. I think you published it in the Asia Pacific Journal. But with that being said, Jeremy, can you first explain the title "Distancing Acts: Private Mercenaries in the War on Terror and American Foreign Policy"? What are you trying to convey that the article addresses?
1: Well, uh, I think you hit on the head that since you know, in the Vietnam War the power elite of C. Wright Mills called them. Learn the lesson, and you know that is that uh, you know if you if you send in ground troops into a quagmire, you're going to have opposition by the American public. So while many you know, at the time were raising critical questions about the U.S. role, of the world and uh, the U.S. empire, the power elite was committed to that empire but they found ways after Vietnam of sustaining that empire and continuously waging wars, but on the cheap, and in a way that wouldn't ignite public protests in the way that the Vietnam War did. And they did that by abolishing the draft, relying more on proxies, special forces, by developing new technology, precision missiles that made it seem like it was humanitarian, you know, that they were precisely targeting the bad guys, and there'd be less collateral damage to use the army war and they developed the drone technology where they didn't even have to have pilots Uh, and then mercenaries were a key part of the equation that allowed them to wage war without a draft by hiring Paid a killer, basically, or, you know, paid mercenaries to carry out the dirty work, and they're huge numbers. I mean, for periods in the Afghan war, I think there were more mercenaries than there were actual U.S. soldiers, and they also get mercenaries to do a lot of the supplying the military and some of the basic work, like the food production and preparation is now all outsourced to private military contractors. Some are not even Americans. They pay them, you know, they save money because they take them from very poor countries and they promise them something, but they're paid very, very low wage.
0: Let's talk about that for a second because you've just mentioned a number of things <laughs> that I think are really important. One of them is just the privatization of these services, whether it's like Halliburton serving food, creating campsites, those types of things. In which, you know, at the end of the day, I can remember the same thing during Hurricane Katrina that there would be these federal contracts, right? I would get the money, and then I would subcontract it out to someone else for like half of it. Like you would do the work that I promised I would do, but charge me half of what I just charged the U.S. government, essentially, is what goes on. And then you would subcontract it out to someone else, and they would do it in a way that made them money You right on down the road. So at the end of the day, we are just defrauding the U.S. public's taxpaying monies that support all this is really what this is about. So number one, let's just talk about that for a second. Apparently, this was something that was introduced by Dick Cheney when he was Secretary of Defense under the first Bush, right? The the idea, the concept of this privatizing of these kinds of services and stuff. Can you indicate the types of monies and how this can possibly be allowed when everyone must know that it's really charging the U.S. government multiple times more than it actually costs for whatever service is being provided.
1: But yeah, in many cases they were overbilling the U.S. government. You know, and there has been a lot of cronyism involved, a no-bid contract, where you know some of these companies that are politically connected, whether it's Halliburton or defense contractors, you know, get the contract, no-bid process, and then they overbill the government and they're never held accountable. And then, you know, you have the revolving door of government officials end up working on those companies or being appointed to the board of those companies. So there's never any accountability. And, yeah, I mean, the loser is almost everybody because, you know, the losers are these countries that are having wars waged on them. They're, they're, as you discussed, their populations are being slaughtered. And the U.S. taxpayer is a loser, too, because his tax dollar goes just to enrich a small number of companies. And, you know, the public services, the, the United States is, has very poor quality now public services, whether it's public transportation, public education, you know, lack of a health care system. So, I mean, the, the U.S. itself is taking on feature of a third world country as a result of this kind of government system. Jeremy,
0: we need to take a quick pause for the cause. I just want to remind folks that this is bringing light into darkness, Monday News and Analysis. On Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM, KOOP.org. We will return with our special guest, Jeremy Kuzmarov, in just a moment. Don't touch that dial.